I'm here at the University of Alabama. Where are you? I'm at the University of Notre Dame eating my clementine, which has oh. become tradition now during that, podcasts, I feel. That is so cool. My clementine? Yeah. It's so yeah. nice to talk to you. We're here. <laughs> We're we're the sausage of science, uh, and we're we're very silly today. Um, we we're just are, tired. We're fatigued. I'm not tired. I'm just silly, honestly. Oh, I'm tired. And unshaved. I hate being <laughs> Zoom, seeing how unshaved I am. What are we doing today, though? Uh, today we are interviewing, re-interviewing, I should say, re-interviewing uh, Dr. Sharon Dewitt, who we had on way early on. Yeah, she was in our sixth episode, and this is damn. Really- this is really cool because uh, I want to tell you a little bit about her in just a second, but um, one of the research ideas that she was talking about in that episode, uh, she followed up on, and we're, we're now interviewing her about sort of the, the, it wasn't that we, she thought of the ideas while talking to us, but she had published a piece in AJHB, then gone to give a talk, and someone asked her a question that led to an idea that she told us about on the podcast Mm -hmm. that she then went and tested and now that's published and we're gonna we're gonna hear from her about it that's fun we're now getting like a longitudinal thing going on with our podcast i like it and we also get to go fix like like we started some of our segments later on and so we Mm -hmm. we interviewed sharon but we really didn't ask sharon about sharon so um, we've polished we we we, you know we've added some polish to our 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 completely ad hoc process here refined yeah so for those of you who are unaware of who our good buddy Sharon is. Dr. Sharon DeWitt is a biological anthropologist at South Carolina. Her research is in bioarchaeology, paleoepidemiology, and paleodemography, and she engages in the reconstruction of life, health, disease, and demography in the past using assemblages of human skeletal remains. Most people know her because she's done a ton of work around Black Death cemeteries in London, and, and specifically populations right before the Black Death and right after the Black Death, to look at how um, communities changed um, in, say, post-conquest Roman Britain or industrial era London. So today's research, uh, today's interview is going to address mm-hmm. some of that research. Yeah, and also you may have seen me make weird faces and look like this. That's because there's like a blizzard going on outside my window. Oh. April Fools. April Fools. It's snowing on April 1st and it's snowing like not a little bit. It's quite a bit. Well, on that note, <laughs> Sharon DeWitt, she, her, has entered the waiting room for this meeting. Shall we? Hooray. Hello. Oh, hey, Hello. Sharon. What do you do with the new hair color? How are you? It's, it's wet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I have not had my hair colored in a year and like a month. And I've been cutting my hair myself. I'm getting my second vaccine shot on Saturday and I'm immediately calling to get my hair done. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. I love how we all are making like our second vaccination shot plans. Yeah. Mine is to go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> go lift some weights and like not be angry at people because of yeah. their poor public health awareness yeah um well i'll still be angry i'm, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna still be angry but at least i'll like get some of it out well, get some of it out and i won't fear for my own life yes yeah. <laughs> i'm fully vaccinated but i have to wait for the rest of my family to do it so oh, okay I, this is haircut it from august i nice. need a haircut badly is this is a wonderful thing about curly hair is it just like hides a multitude of stuff so yeah yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> doesn't do that as like my visibility, as you can see, has gotten worse and worse. <laughs> so how have you been? Um uh loaded question <laughs> these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh it is highly variable. Yeah. I like I like the bright whiteness of the, the room behind you. That is um very uplifting. Oh good. Yeah. I, I gotta say I are we are we recording yet? We are recording, we are. We, but we but can edit. Anything. We can edit. Okay. Um I, I'm I um am pushing back on recommendations to have backgrounds that hide things during professional presentations. I feel like everyone should be happy that any of us are capable of doing anything at this point. And if you all have to see my couch and my cat, I didn't like, no. <laughs> and I think pets are like, have become the most welcome thing. I know. Right now, <laughs> bring yeah. up all of the pets. <laughs> yeah. I believe at one point, like last semester, uh, you know, doing synchronous Zoom stuff, I, I, I saw a pet like walk in the background of a student. I'm like, the entire class stopped. I stopped yes. the class. I'm like, no, you bring that pet onto the screen right now. Yeah. <laughs> Please bring that pet onto the screen. I was giving a talk at um, for a history course at Wake Forest a couple weeks ago. And I mean, this might happen today. Um, so like, because we've been at home for so long, our cats are on a very regimented feeding schedule. So 1 p.m. is, is snack time. And then, and then one of our cats, Ulysses, he gets like post-snack zoomies. And, um, so I was giving this talk and he was like two feet away from me. I don't have, I don't have doors that are, there's there's no closing off this office. So anyways, he was two feet away from me playing with a squeaky toy, just so exuberant. And the squeaky toy was so loud. And so I just stopped and I asked the people, you know, the audience, can you hear this? And they all like laughed and nodded. Yes. And so I was just like, Hey, Eric, can you come wrangle Ulysses? And Eric came and got Ulysses and made him go play upstairs. And like, I can see how some people would think, oh, that's not very professional. But I'm like, this is, I, I feel like this is the epitome of professionalism that I can interrupt my talk, uh, take care of my shit, and then immediately just pick up where I, <laughs> where I left off. <laughs> oh, and also I'm a human. So yeah, yeah. 100% agree. And I think all the students have been super grateful for those permissions. And I do, I do the same thing, you know, because I want to see them. And yes. I'm like, I know you're laying in bed or at your yeah. house, but you know, so am I. And like, let's be human and like, please bring your dogs and cats to class and introduce them. Yeah. Kids. You know, kids, everything. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I, we've had it all and it's been, it's been welcome because, you know, uh, they're all feeling the same feels that we're. Yeah. 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 And it's not business as usual. It's as yeah. very unusual. So why should we act as if everything is like, yeah hunky door yeah no no i would yeah. i would narrate the, like the wildlife scene taking place in the window in front of me that makes you <laughs> fancy mm-hmm. hawks swooping in and picking Aww. up monks and taking oh, no. I mean, <laughs> crazy shit would always happen and yeah. i'm like i'm gonna stop class and tell you about yeah, it. everyone should know about this yeah if i'm distracted i might as well distract you yeah. <laughs> i mean but frankly your your home is like a better background than my office here so <laughs> i yeah That's so true. we we, we moved into this house um november of 2019 then it was thanksgiving and then pandemic I, yeah um, so we have been like making our home space as, as nice for ourselves as possible good for you 
Yeah. Well, it's so easy to slip into familiarity with you, but our mm-hmm. our listeners are probably like, who the frick are <laughs> these people? So, and we didn't do this the first time, so we want to do, um, we want to we want to hear more about your background okay. for the, these interviews. And, yeah. you know, of course, I actually realize I know a little bit of this too, but not the whole thing. So we'd love to hear about little Sharon DeWitt, what led mm-hmm. her down the road toward and into anthropology and and why you chose it as a career. Yeah, cool. So I went, you said little Sharon DeWitt. I am going to go back to when I was little. I was, a, I was weird. <laughs> I think that's like a common origin story for a lot of people who go into anthropology. But I, so I'm, I'm a bioarchaeologist. So, you know, like my career is based around looking at the skeletal remains of people who've been dead for a long time. But I had, I've had an interest in dead things for as far back as I can remember. So I was like the kind of kid that would, if there was like a dead bumblebee on the sidewalk, I would bury it. And then I would like think about what it, should I dig it up? Like I was, I was a little bit odd. Um, when my, when my grandma died, when I was five, and we went to the funeral, I went missing and my parents finally found me. I was trying to like find other bodies to look at. Um, and my parents just, they didn't, they didn't like, they didn't get nervous about it. They're just like, all right. So yeah, so I've always just sort of had this like comfort level um, with respect to death and dead things. Um, and then I got to say, as a high school student, I was not, I didn't apply for college. I, de- I, I did take the SATs, but I didn't apply. I didn't submit any applications to, to university. And then when I was, you know, in my senior year, my parents said, well, you have to do something. So either, you know, you're going to go to college or you're going to get a job. And I was like, well, getting a job sounds like a bad idea. Um, so I was just very directionless. Like I, I did well in high school, but I just, nothing stuck out to me as like really suiting my, my interests. So I was lucky enough. I grew up in Santa Rosa, California, and I went to Santa Rosa junior college for my tr- first two years of, of undergrad. And it was amazing. I just remember pouring through the course catalog, you know, it was like, it was like the Sears catalog when you're little and looking at, at toys <laughs> for Christmas. Like that's, that's what it felt like for me when I was first in college and looking at all of the courses and, and just sort of like, you know, things being, um, being aware of things I had never heard of before. Um, and then I took my first anthropology class as a sophomore, the, my, the fall of my sophomore year, I took introduction to biological anthropology. And then I became the most obnoxious, like, I was like, everyone needs to, I was like, I was like proselytizing for anthropology. I loved every minute of it. Um, and it was the first time that I really thought this is something that I can actually see myself doing because it really just hits on so many of my interests that I didn't realize could all be encompassed within a single field. Um, so I declared my major and then I was like, if I want to do this, I got to, I got to go to grad school and, and things, um, you know, they, they worked out. I went to Sonoma state for, um, the rest for my bachelor's in California. Then I went to Penn state for grad school. And that's where my interest in looking at, you know, population level patterns of health really that it was revealed that I could actually do that. That was a viable option. And, and then I had the very good fortune that as I was planning my dissertation project, uh, my advisor, Jim Wood had, had been hearing about a black death cemetery that was excavated and curated in London. So things sort of um, fell into place for me. A lot of it was luck. So yeah, I feel very, I feel really lucky that it worked out the way it did. So one, is that noise I just heard? That's snack the cat. Time. Yep. I was about to say, yeah. like, is that what's happening? I'm so yeah, yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't <laughs> wait to watch this and listen to it unfold as we go along. Um, uh, you actually set it up really, really well. Uh, the last time you were on our show, you were telling us that you use 
skeletal samples from London cemeteries that you just mm -hmm. mentioned uh, of people who died before and after the Black Death to better understand heterogeneity and trends that we observe mm -hmm. uh, that have historically been linked to social and demographic changes. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that sample, like who is mm -hmm. buried in these cemeteries? Yeah. Uh, who are these people? And, and uh, you said your advisor mentioned them, but like, how did we find out about, was this like a hidden cemetery, a well-known cemetery? And then how do you get access to it all? Yeah. So um, the, the cemetery in London that I did my dissertation research on and that I've continued to, to um, use data from, it's called the East Smithfield Cemetery. It's part of a larger site called the Royal Mint site. And the site is um, located um, just a, literally across the street from the Tower of London. Um, and the, the Black Death Cemetery, the East Smithfield Black Death Cemetery was known about because it was written about at the time of the Black Death. There was actually very detailed records about um, the purpose of the cemetery. It was established for the sole purpose of, of accommodating the excess mortality that people in the city knew was going to happen during the coming plague. So it was actually the, the land was set aside before the Black Death arrived in London. And then it did arrive in, in um 1348, 1349, um, and then the cemetery was used for Black Death burials, uh, and then after the Black Death ended, there was an abbey, the Abbey of St. Mary Graces, established on that site after the dissolution of the monasteries um, in the 1500s. Um, eventually, the site was used for, uh, as a Royal Navy victualling yard, and then it was the site of the Royal Mint until the latter half of the 20th century. So this was a, a site that had many layers of documented use. And then in the 1980s, that area of East London, near the Tower of London, um, there was a, um, a planned redevelopment project. And so um, the city was you know, um, tearing down buildings and they knew from written records that there were, that they were going to hit archeological sites. Um, so the Museum of London Archaeology Service was called in to do excavations of the skeletal remains that were, were revealed, as well as the material culture and everything else um, at those at those various um, sites. Um, when I was planning, to, to be clear, my first love from a bioarchaeological perspective was syphilis. And so my, <laughs> my original dissertation project was going to be on the, the medieval syphilis epidemic um, and the debate about whether syphilis was a pre-Columbian disease or not. As things happen in dissertation field work, it, it basically like once I was on the ground trying to get samples, it kind of fizzled because I wasn't able to collect the kind of data that I wanted to. And I had this moment of like, well, I'll just quit and study cephalopods. Um, <laughs> so I, well, when we start with like, my first love was syphilis, but you know, maybe I can go to cephalopods. And so really maybe I'm like thinking octopi. I just, <laughs> or you just like the pH sound, and you're just switching <laughs> from one to the other. Yeah, I don't why not, have a viable. Why not schistosomiasis or or other? <laughs> I don't know. Syphilis or cephalopods. That's it. <laughs> And so I, I was very lucky that I was do I was actually collecting data in Denmark um, at the anthropological database at at, um, at the University of Southern Denmark. My advisor and his partner were both on sabbatical in Denmark. Um, and so it was basically I called him distraught one evening. He was gracious enough to accept my call. And we and he said, well, maybe you switch to the Black Death because he had he, he had been in contact with the Museum of London just to sort of see, you know, what what were these skeletal remains that had been excavated in the 1980s? Were they still being curated? Were they available? 
and they were so open to um, to the, the potential for people to do research. Um, so so it, in the early days, it just required me sending an email to the mm. collections manager, Bill White, who's unfortunately um, no longer alive. It just required an email and him saying, yeah, come. And I did. And then in the inter intervening year, the museum did establish the Center for Human Bioarchaeology. And now they have a much more formal process of... Um, of, of vetting requests by scholars who want to do research on the over 20,000 skeletal remains that they have um, from the Iron Age on up. So I've got, this was not on the, the list of questions, so I apologize. <laughs> but you, what you said early on that how this cemetery was land put aside in preparation for what they knew to be a plague oh, yes. that was going to come yeah. in and going to mm-hmm. kill a lot of people. And I can't help but think about Right now, the yes. fact that we're in, you know, in an ongoing pandemic and how both transportation and communication systems during the time of the Black yes. Death were much, much slower than they were today. Yes. And so part of me went like, you know, the United States knew about the COVID-19 yeah. issue, you know, back in November before it actually hit the U.S. And there didn't seem to be any sort of preparation. Right. But you also have to think about the communication for the Black Death period where it may have been slower but the travel would have been as well, but they still put in the time and effort to, yes. to like prepare. I don't know. I yeah. feel like there's something important in a parallel yes. there that's at the tip of my head, but it's yeah. Not. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, so, so what we refer to as the black death is a lot of people now, what they use that to refer to the, the European specific epidemic that was part of the larger second pandemic of plague, which um, the, the pathogenic strain that caused it, probably originated in in Central Asia, um, maybe in the 12th century, and then spread um, westward. A lot of what we know about the Black Death does come from European sources because there's this Eurocentric focus on those areas. Scholarship is expanding, um, which is great, um, to other areas of Afro-Eurasia. But we we know that, you know, people recognize that this was a catastrophe as it was spreading across Europe, in the Mediterranean, and and, and then the rest of Europe. and so people in London, in England, for example, they were getting reports from the continent about the massive mortality that was happening. And what they did in um, some areas, including in London, was they just, they got ready. They knew that, they knew it was inevitable and they, they had an understanding that the, the rates of mortality were going to be more than they could cope with with their existing cemeteries. Um, and so the, the area where East Smithfield was established was it had been agricultural land just outside the city walls near the Tower of London. Um, and so um, wealthy, powerful people within the city coordinated to get that ready. And then the, the plague arrived. And then that cemetery was only used during the Black Death. So there's a distinct area that's just Black Death, used just during the Black Death. And the assumption is that most of those people were actually victims of that epidemic. Wow, that's really cool. And I, I'm, I'm sort of bugging out because I'm thinking of, of how amazing those resources must be and, and how I'd love to go check it out too. Now I'm so, sort of in, screw the cephalopods, let's, let's look at <laughs> dead people. The last time we had you on the show, you just published an article where you looked at male and female skeletons before and after the Black Death. And mm-hmm. what the prediction was is that health and nutrition had improved after the Black Death. Mm-hmm. So you would see... Um, you would see larger stature, but we saw that in males, but in Mm -hmm. females, you were actually seeing not just not larger stature, but shorter stature. And as I, I recall, you had then gone and done a talk Mm -hmm. and someone had asked you, 
because you were still trying to puzzle out why yes. women got shorter and someone had said what about menarche and you were like holy shit what about menarche yeah. and now you have a new paper uh in ajhb in the in a in a, in a, in a special issue and I'll, I'll i'll name the issue it's a uh, biocultural approaches to the plasticity of the human skeleton and your article is medieval menarche changes in pubertal pubertal timing before and after the black death so now you have gone mm -hmm. and addressed that question that you talked about last time which is it's so cool seeing science yeah. actually continue <laughs> but so so tell us about that now how did you how have you done that yeah so i'll, I'll just i should actually specify the the professor who who first planted that seed was Nina Pfefferman um, at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Nice. Um, and um, yeah, so, so she, I gave that talk before I, I wrote up that paper for AJHB. So I, I was really only able to just talk about it as a possibility. Mm -hmm. But as I, as I mentioned, when, when we last talked on episode six, <laughs> um, that-, that We're at the, like the, 106 now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Congratulations to you. Um, so I, you know, I, I knew at that time that Mary Lewis at the University of Reading, she has been pioneering this approach to use what we know from the clinical literature on skeletal changes that are tied to different stages of, of puberty, um, applying that to skeletal samples of people who died in the past. I'm really interested in menarche because um, individuals who have bodies that menstruate remember menarche for those bodies that are capable of, 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 of menstruating. Um, and, it, and it's one of those really neat things where you have this incredibly important um, portion of the of the lifespan of life history that that people who menstruate will remember decades after the event in a way that's not possible for other events of pubertal timing. I remember menarche. I don't remember when I first got hair in my armpit. So like it's not a, it's not the same sort of dramatic event. And so. We have we have data we have recall data from living people where we can we can look at when when people who can menstruate when they started and what were the socioeconomic political growth conditions environmental conditions that existed at the time that they experienced their first menses. Um, we also have information from historical records about pubertal timing about menarche and and with the work that uh, Mary Lewis and her um, former students have done uh, we now can assess these pubertal changes in the skeletal sample and then we can actually do work that puts us into more direct conversation with people who are interested in living people you know bioarchaeologists are interested in living people we just focus on the remains of living people um, so but we're interested in what was happening while they were alive so I knew that you know Mary had done um work to assess these skeletal indicators of pubertal timing in the same collections where I had done the uh, data collection for the paper that I that I talked about previously. So I just sent her an email and I said, you know, I, I, I had met her in passing, but I don't, I didn't know her at the time very well. Um, and, uh, and I just so out of the blue just said, hi, I, I just, I'm publishing this paper. I, I think your work is wonderful. Do you, would you ever be interested in working together? And she said, sure, just sent me an Excel file with all of her data. Um, so it's just, you know, one of those examples of how never be afraid to reach out to people and sort of the, um, and just, you know, assume that people are going to be generous. If they're not, they're not, but don't, 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 you know, assume the best. Um, so she sent me her pubertal timing data and then I did the analyses and that's what, um, resulted in the, the paper that we have published. 
maybe um, you could, oh, I'm sorry, go yes, ahead. No, 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 you. Oh, I was like, maybe we can get into some of the details about how you try to tease this apart, given that these are dead samples. Like these, yeah, these yeah. are not people who can actually tell you about certain things right, verbally. Yeah. Yeah. about how you might be able to tell the difference if, if age at menarche is what's going on here or that yeah. maybe fewer women were dying. Yes. Uh, yeah. and so some yeah. things that made it. So yeah, how do you yeah. tease that apart? And I do, so I just want to, I want to take back up a step and uh, I've been increasingly aware of um, how problematic it is to describe sex in the way that I have conventionally done it in my paper. So I just want to be clear to everyone listening um, that in, in, Bioarchaeology, what we're looking at is estimated sex based on features of the skeleton that tend to be associated with um, elevated levels of estrogen versus elevated levels of testosterone. So we say male and female is a shorthand. It ignores the fact that sex is a continuum. And it also, we tend to forget to emphasize that we're talking about estimates. Um, so I just want to put that out there. So this is another layer yeah, of uncertainty. It's important, in the... but it's also the same thing with those hormones. Those hormones exist on a range yes, as well. Yes, and people yeah. are so into this binary of yes. man, testosterone, woman, yes. estrogen, and there's no overlap. And yeah, like... no, there's, there's, a, there's, there's variation in the amount of hormones that are produced. There's variation in the sensitivity of the cells to those hormones. Yeah, there's a lot of variation that produces a continuation, a continuum of sex, which what we tend to do in bioarchaeology is reduce that down to a binary, even though we might not, you know, a lot of us don't view sex in that way. Um, okay, so given that, so yeah, so um, what what uh, Mary had done is um, she had the um, estimated sex, um, so we had individuals who were estimated to be likely female, probable female, individuals of indeterminate sex, probable male, estimated probable male, estimated likely male, and just to be clear, indeterminate sex reflects failures of us as observers. It doesn't actually, it's not reflective necessarily of anything to do with that individual. Um, and then she had assessed people, or she and her former student, um, doctor, who's now Dr. Chaplin, had um, assessed those pubertal stages within the St. Mary Spittle collection. Um, so this includes like fusion of the hook of the hammy within the wrist. I mean, I'm point, this is a podcast. I, I gesture a lot. Anyways, I'm pointing to my own wrist. Um, so fusion of the of the handmate, the hook of the handmate, fusion of the um, epiphyses of, of um, the bones of the of the palm of the hand, um, epiphyses of the long bones of the arm, um, as well as the iliac crest. So there's a, there are different spots within the skeleton, and from the the clinical literature where we we where clinicians actually know. The, the pubertal status of the individuals, they have x-rays of those individuals, they've established what are the ranges of timing of these fusion events, and then we can use that to assess the skeletons if they are preserved well enough that you actually have, you know, the, the ability to look at the epiphyses and, um, the, and the degree of fusion. So she had those data, and then what, what I contributed was, was data on um, some age estimates, and then the analysis. What we did was we focused just on those individuals um, for whom we could determine age at death and for whom we could estimate sex, um, and we focused on the portion of the lifespan that corresponds to the World Health Organization's designation of adolescence, so 10 to 25, um, so that we're capturing basically the, the latest age at which we would expect menarche to occur under typical circumstances, um, as well as those individuals who would have been pre-menarchial. Um, so basically looking at adolescence. So basically the two questions you're looking at is, did things that happened 
related to growth, like infections related to growth and development that maybe used to kill people is killing them less now? Or do they have an earlier agent menarche, which is resulting in the, the shorter stature, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so basically the, the, what, what I found before were um, the survivorship results. So survivorship can reflect general levels of health. The healthier people are, the longer they can expect to live in general. So what I'd found previously was that survivorship improved after the Black Death for, for all individuals considered. When I separated it by estimated sex, survivorship improved. That tracks well with what we're getting from the historical documents that suggest that in the context of, of England, diets improved for people of all status levels, that people had better wages. So, so growth conditions potentially were better after the Black Death, at least temporarily. And so what we see in some contemporary populations is that if conditions of growth are good, relatively good, so people are well-nourished, um, they're, they're exposed to relatively low levels of infectious disease burdens, um, what that can lead to is an acceleration of pubertal timing. And the, the idea underlying that is that these are you know, adaptive responses um, of our bodies to environmental conditions that are expected to predict adult conditions. So if conditions are good for growth, that is a prediction that conditions are going to be good for reproduction. And so your body basically is, is capable of adjusting, not, not, none of this is conscious, but the, the timing of puberty is accelerated so that reproduction can get going um, because conditions are good. There, you know, there's like a expectation that, that the conditions will support successful reproduction. So that's one possible mechanism for what I'm seeing with survivorship improving, but stature for females is, is declining, is that if growth conditions were good and puberty was accelerated, what that does is, um, in, in many contemporary populations, earlier age at menarche is associated with uh, a sh shorter adult stature because menarche is associated with a surge in estrogen, um, estradiol, and that surge is also associated with cessation of the growth at the, uh, of the cells in the growth plates of bones. And so when, when you, that, that surge happens, um, that means that growth ceases. So it's, it's, so there's a possibility that growth conditions were better. Puberty occurred earlier. That meant that growth ceased and therefore females might've achieved shorter stature than, than they would have, um, when conditions for growth were not as good. The other possibility is that females um, at the time of the Black Death and afterwards might have been better buffered against physiological stressors and therefore better able to survive those stressors such that the females who survived to adulthood were a collection of both short and average and tall females. Whereas when conditions might have been poorer prior to the Black Death, there, there might have been stronger selection against those shorter females who might have been frail. So as is true with a lot of bioarchaeological work, when we do these sorts of studies and try to answer one question, doesn't necessarily answer them, um, but it sort of like gets us incrementally closer and gives us ideas for, okay, what do we now need to look at so that we can better distinguish the possible underlying mechanisms? And so tell us where you are now. Like what, what is your conclusion from this paper? And then what question... <laughs> It has that set up for you? Yeah, so the, the conclusion from this paper with, with Mary Lewis is that we do have evidence that the average age of post-monarchial females, 
So for individuals that we estimated had reached menarche, the average age for postmenarchial females declined after the Black Death compared to pre-Black Death conditions. And what that suggests is that the average age at menarche declined after the Black Death compared to pre-Black Death conditions. Given what we know from the written records, that would suggest that conditions for, of growth were better, nutrition might have been better, disease burdens might have been lower, and therefore uh, there was a, 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 an acceleration of puberty uh, to reflect those better conditions. And because of that acceleration beneath puberty, so earlier age of menarche, that would have produced shorter stature for females, but not males. So that's what that was the one of the possible conclusions of the paper. So we've we have we have evidence that the age at menarche did decrease after the Black Death. It's not like the definitive answer. We had a fair, you know a relatively small sample size, and it still doesn't eliminate the possibility that there was also buffering to the extent that females who might not have survived under pre-Black Death conditions were able to survive in those better growth conditions after the Black Death. So more work needs to be done. Oh, another important thing is um, there was, migration was happening across the medieval period. It might've increased after the Black Death. Um, and it could be that the patterns that we're seeing are not actually reflective of um, of local temporal trends, but instead might be reflecting an influx of very healthy young females from rural contexts into the Black Death, into the Black Death, into the um, post-Black Death population of London. So those those changes in both age at menarche and stature, they might actually be reflecting rural versus urban conditions rather than reflecting directly a, a consequence of the, the Black Death and the mortality that it produced. Um, so going forward, what we want to do is look really carefully at um, rural samples to see if we're seeing those same sorts of trends in stature and age at menarche in the rural contexts, um, and also looking at, at London samples to identify um, individuals who weren't local to London to see if is there a distinction between individuals who have London signatures versus those who have signatures of childhood elsewhere. Um, how does that fit with, with this, this larger pattern that we're seeing? Um, so really the goal now is to use as many lines of evidence as possible to uncover some of that heterogeneity that we tend not to um, be able to uncover um, so that we might actually be able to detect uh, the effective diet, the effective migrant status um, and other things. I have two kind of picky follow-up questions. Like yeah. It's going to like force you into the details and theory. Yeah. Uh, one, with the demographic, I imagine with the demographic trend that that post-Black death, there's going to be a population boom because well, like that's the question, like d does this earlier age of menarche, did this actually translate into more babies? Yes. Yeah, so born? yeah, that's a good question. And this is something uh, I gave it, I gave a talk at, at, at Santa Barbara and Michael Gervin pushed me on this about like, well, could, because there is an association in some populations, contemporary populations where age at menarche and an adult achieved adult stature are not significantly associated, but age at first reproduction and adult stature are significantly associated such mm. that an earlier age at first reproduction is associated with um, shorter stature. So that's, that's another possible possibility. Okay. So in um, some parts of Europe, the Black Death is credited with ushering in the European marriage pattern. Um, and I think I talked about this last time I was on the show. So this is one of the things that some of the things this is this is characterized by is a um, uh, delayed age at marriage. 
which for for in many contexts also means delayed age at first reproduction. Um, and it's also associated with a, a greater proportion of people um, remaining unmarried and remaining um, um, and non-reproductive for their for their adult lifespans. And some this has some economic pushes. Basically, more opportunities were open to people, which motivated them to delay marriage. So there's this marriage pattern, which would actually suggest that fertility might have declined after the Black Death in places like England. And then I've done previously um, used skeletal age estimates to estimate what's considered a proxy for fertility or for birth mm -hmm. rates. And it's the proportion of individuals with an estimated age above 30 over um, the, number, the, the number of individuals above the age of five. Um, and this has been found to be associated with birth rates. And so um, within the context of medieval London with the skeletal samples I've used, I have found no significant change mm. across the medieval period in that proxy for birth rates. So, so far the skeletal data and what we know from um, these marriage patterns, it doesn't look like there would have been a, a huge boom in population once the epidemic ended. That's really and be, cool. And it's yeah. like it's the it's the cultural and the social structure that's yes. affecting the biology there, and uh -huh. and it is counterintuitive when you think about you know the yes. earlier age at menarche. That's really awesome. Yeah, and, and when we talk about life history trade offs and like the principles and principle mm -hmm. of allocation, we we talk about strategies and and we use language that suggests agency and consciousness and goals in ways that are inappropriate. <laughs> and I'm but finding this, you know, teaching grad students, they're like, wait. How do, how do they, I'm like, no, none of this has to be conscious. So, but very often you think, okay, if conditions for growth are good, that means that reproduction can hurt, happen at an, early age, at an earlier age, but that's not what has to happen because we're humans. And there's a lot of context that actually determines whether someone does have these options, but we can't ignore people's agency in these, in these sorts of things. I think in a way that kind of gets lost when we talk about life history. I, I think you, you, you get to the other question that I have, especially with life history patterns and, and trade-offs. And, and it's the other theory that you have that there may have been buffering, that females mm -hmm. may have been able to better buffer during the black death than mm -hmm. say males. Do you have any thoughts on what, like what the actual mechanism of that buffering may have been? And this is like, you yeah. know, high theory yeah. at this point. I don't expect yes. you to have data, but I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in general, and again, this is ignoring, this is basically dichotomizing sex in a way that's not correct, but in general, and this is not just true of humans, but also other animals in general, um, females tend to experience longer life expectancies, expectancies and lower risks of age specific mortality rates. There, ten, there can be exceptions during reproductive ages because of maternal mortality. But in general, so if we focus on humans, in general, for those populations for which we have data, females live longer and they experience lower risks of death at each age compared to males. And where we see exceptions to that pattern, those exceptions are usually explained in terms of cultural buffering that privileges male offspring. So taking, kit, taking sons to the doctor at higher rates than daughters, provisioning males with better food than provisioning daughters. Um, so things that are not inherent biological characteristics of those individual bodies, but are cultural buffering mechanisms. So some of the reasons why females might be better buffered is um, estrogens can have a, um, an immune enhancing effect whereas testosterone can have a, an, an immune compromising effect. I'm interested in famine. So I've done some studies of, of famine as well. Um, and a lot of the literature that looks at sex differences in risks of death during famine, some of those studies have found that, that female bodies are less uh, likely to die during famines 
in part because greater fat stores basically give them resources that are not available to a typical male body. And a lot of deaths that occur during famine conditions are the result of infection that occurs because malnutrition has an immune suppressive effect. Um, and so if females have an already baseline elevated immune response, um, that, that provides a buffer to them during famine conditions. Um, and then there's also the, the fact that um, many female bodies do have um, two X chromosomes where male bodies tend to have just a single X chromosome and there can be protective effects of having the two X chromosomes. So there are some um, genetic and um, hormonal, I'm, acting, I'm talking about them as if they're completely separate. They're not, but <laughs> um, genetic, hormonal, physiological differences between a, a typical female body, I'm doing air quotes, female body and male body that can be biologically protective of those female bodies. And then if you want to go even larger, we need more female bodies because those are in this, I'm going to be super problematic in a way that I hate, but where the, the female bodies with uteruses and ovaries that are functioning are the bodies capable of producing offspring. And those are, you need more of those than you need of the bodies that inseminate. Sure. So. But it also means like, I loved your point about how it was cultural and social differences that led to not increased fertility, like mm -hmm. fertility didn't go up. Yes. And that again, you know, women aren't just baby making yep. machines. That right. We have this agency to control yes. what's going on and it's not all fertility, fertility, fertility. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I have to admit that I am, I have been provided some insight into what you're describing from fiction. I uh -huh. actually read this book, uh, the second book of a series, Ken Follett's World Without End, which is taking place in an English village uh, during the Black Death. And they're really dealing with people who survived the Black Death, females who are pushed into the nunnery and then into healing positions. Mm -hmm. And and it addresses their agency a lot. So what you're saying really resonates. And it's a recent book. So it's it's trying to address these yeah. things. But that's my transition to like, what does Sharon do in her free time? Do you also read books about Black Death fictionalized? or do you, I do. do you yeah. Do so I, I, one of my favorite things to do when I'm not working is to read, to read novels. Um, my, my favorite books about my favorite novels about the Black Death are um, A Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks. And that is, it's told from the context of a, of a young woman who is in, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not the Black Death. It's the Great Plague of 1665. Same pandemic, different, different event, um, but same disease. And it's, it takes place, it's a fictionalized version of a real village that did enforce very strong, a very strong um, uh, sanitary cordon around the village um, with the effect of elevated mortality within the village, but, you know, for the greater good. Um, that I, I recommend, but what I like even more <laughs> is Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. And that is a sci like a science fiction historical novel. Um, and the, con the concept is that a PhD student from, I think one of like Oxbridge, one of those um, is, travels through time. So the intent is for her to go back to the time of the Great Famine, 1315, to see firsthand the sorts of things that she's studying from historical documents. And then there's a screw up and she ends up arriving at like the arrival of the Black Death in England. And the, I read that book twice in Chris. So Chris is a grad student at Albany when I was a faculty member there. When I interviewed for that job, there was a biology professor who gave me a copy of that book. So I, I, it, it has like really nice memories for that 
because of that as well. Um, but I, I like, I, I recommend that book. Um, right now I'm reading Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is not about the Black Death. <laughs> um, that's a sci-fi fantasy book. N.K. Jemisin, I love her work. So yeah, I, I like, I, I read a lot of um, novels and lately a lot of, you know, trying to read novels that take me out of the, this context. So I'm reading science fiction. I assume then you've read the Broken Earth trilogy. Oh my God. They're making a, they're making a, um, a show, right? They're making a show. I yes. know. I'm so excited, but I'm also worried. I'm so when worried. When I love a book or a book series, yes. I get very fearful that the show will destroy. Yes. And I'm like, does N.K. Jemison have any say in who they cast for that? I hope so. I thought, I thought she was pretty deeply involved okay, with it, good. but I could yeah. be way off about that. Um, I was going to say something. Also, Chris, I looked up the book that you mentioned, The World Without End. It's a 45-hour audiobook. <laughs> Beautiful. I love but that. 45 Just hours. increase the read time, the read speed. Just double it. Oh, oh, I, always, I always listen to everything at one and a half, including our own podcast. second <laughs> in a trilogy, and it's I love it. Speaking what's of that, have one? you... What's the first one? If that's the second, what's the first one? And how many hours of audio book is that? <laughs> Similar. Uh, Similar. The first one takes place earlier, so it's this- Oh, Pillars of Earth? Yeah, Pillars yeah. yeah, they okay. build a church and do all their stuff. And then the next one is Black Death and- So I read the first one and I didn't, I, I thought that the villain was too villainous. I was like, there's no nuance. Yeah. I like my I like my villains to be a little bit charming. So I <laughs> yeah. makes them more insidious. You're right in that regard. But, you know, I mean, it's yeah. like Star Wars, you know, so, sometimes you just like it's super, super black and white because here's the problem. Once they get into uh, like really good human complexity, I have to listen to things three or four times to like pull it apart. Yeah, I, I'm doing that. So who in Star Wars are you saying is 100 percent bad? Surely not Darth Vader. Palpatine. Not, not, oh, well, yeah. OK. That's Palpatine. a good that's a good point. Because yeah. Darth. No, no. But Palpatine, totally. <laughs> Um, although part of our pandemic binging was Clone Wars, like watching yes. all of that. And like Darth Maul became such a fascinating character. So uh, I did not watch it, but my husband did. And so he, we have like asynchronous lunchtime. So I'll be working and he's watching it. And I would just like pop in occasionally and have him give me the rundown of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably need to, to do all the prequels and stuff. And I, and I have it. So I'm still back with, Star Wars, the original, I don't know, three to six, and it was very clear, black and white, but mm. I know they've painted in some of the color since then. And I should say, be uh, Clone Wars and Rebels. Yeah, doing both. I think Darth Maul was more important in Rebels now that I think about it. Like, <laughs> I get the mix up because when you binge watch it, it all just oh, like yeah. melds together. But... Yeah, I've been watching a lot of TV. I'm watching Pose right now. I'm loving that. Oh yeah, yeah. Rebel loves that one. We just started watching old episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race and it's like, it's a delightful like oh, cool yeah. down. It's like comfort food. When I watch, uh, you know how Netflix has different different people. So when we when we watch Netflix via my wife's, <laughs> her category, like the categories that she watches <laughs> both pop up. So lesbian, LGBTQ, melodramas and comedies is like her number one yeah. category. And when we go to mine, you can't even find comedies on it. Like, <laughs> mine seen. does not know what to do with me. It's like, I think you like move Korean movies. Like it really, it's, it's like, 
it's just a random generator yes, at this point yeah. for you. And like, it's not wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mine's like, a mix of like true crime and then great British baking show. Yeah, <laughs> like this, yeah that's, that's something else I want to watch because I've had a lot of people tell me that has, it's the perfect amount of tension. Like, you know, it's not going to turn out bad mm-hmm. and people are very like, genuinely nice to each other. They are. So, like, there's yeah. no like meat, like with American reality shows, people are always mean and trying yeah. to undercut one another. And that does not happen with great british bacon that's nice that explains why one of my children wants to be on those shows he loves that sort of shows and then also to be one of the producers of one of those wait shows. the one the the ones where people are nice or where people are not nice no they're not nice he, he oh. thinks it's hilarious watching their machiavellian <laughs> strategies oh. of deception i like because it's just like it's calming and they feel like friends that mm-hmm. are cooking for yeah. you in your living room oh, speaking, speaking of which sherrod so you mentioned that i was your ta and my kids were babies three or four then they're going to college in the fall she was like visibly upset by this chris it's just i i I keep (laughs) waiting to feel like a (laughs) grown-up i will always feel like a student like i just forever and always i I don't know what it would take i you know we bought a house we sold a house we bought another house i kind of figured maybe home ownership would be it but no it's just not happening this is what it takes. When I realize my own children are the age of my undergrads, I do finally feel so like- So should I adopt a college student? Uh, <laughs> you know, you gotta raise- I like how that's a solution. <laughs> you gotta raise them all the way up and I then don't do that. That, no. realize you're having a midlife crisis. <laughs> At the same time, you realize you're finally a grown up. <laughs> Which means I will forever feel like a student and a child awesome. yep. play acting as a grown up. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know, I hope anyway. I hope I go back. Yes, anyway. Thank you, Sharon. Sharon. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's, like, it's, it's so much fun talking with you. I think the last time I saw you were the AAAs in Vancouver. Yeah. Like, I remember sitting down at the bar and chatting yes. with you and it being lovely oh. and fun and how I miss that so I much. I miss it, too. I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing virtual conferences this year. They're just not the same. They're not the same. And I also feel compelled to always look pleasant when I'm on camera, you know? So then, like... <laughs> <laughs> and then I get As off I and sit Eric here in my sweatshirt and tank top. I'm just like I'm done. <laughs> yeah, now I've given up. I've clearly given up. <laughs> but you yeah, know, Chris and I basically started our intro of just like bemoaning how we miss standing in a 30-minute Starbucks line at conferences yes. and seeing yeah. people we know and love and miss. Yeah, and it, I like that AAPAs is doing, and maybe HPAs is doing this too, having um, like virtual networking things. But it's just the the and again, I love I love the access. I think mm-hmm. we should go for you know going forward still have the accessibility, but also like conferences are nerd spring break, and I want to hang out with my friends and yeah. it's the yeah. impromptu conversations, yes. yeah. and that doesn't happen in the, in the virtual environment. Yeah, and so maybe yeah. it will if we get used to it. I think it's just still so. Don't 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 do that, Sharon. Because I want to <laughs> be supportive of there being accessibility. I agree with the accessibility, but I also what agree I, with that we need to have some in-person thing as an option mm-hmm. too. What I suggested yes. at the beginning of before you got on that we we need to worry about is make sure our administrators don't realize we can teach classes by Zoom while we're at conferences. No, but we can't. We this is the thing: the AEP is being stretched out for three weeks. There's things I can't see that I would be able to if I was just like, I'm out, I'm going to a conference, bye, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. I can't be like, I, I will most not be teaching HBAs. for three weeks. 
we are literally missing an HBA session right now. Yep. And, you know, and I would, have to continue we, missing it because I've got another this. Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't have scheduled anything on top of it. But I also yeah. have job interviews that I'm conducting all week, so yeah. you know that's yeah, that's, it's been that's bad. It. But anyway, as always, it's a delight talking with you. And Thank it- you. So good to see you. And I hope we will see each other again. Oh, have a good one. Bye. Thank you. Karen.